Hey everybody, welcome to the 115th episode of the JDO Show. I'm your host, J. David Osborne, and today on the show we have comedian Adam Caton Holland. Adam is a member of the comedy troupe The Grolix. He was also on the true TV show Those Who Can't. And I was watching this dude's uh, stand-up. He's been on Conan, he's been all over the place. He's a really, really funny dude. And he recently wrote a memoir called Tragedy Plus Time that I enjoyed very much. He uh, pulls off something that I think is very difficult in that it feels like an actual honest book, which is rare in fiction and nonfiction pretty much anywhere. It is about the suicide of his sister and how he kind of coped with that. It's pretty heavy shit. It's got a little bit of humor in there, though, and it's also very well written, so it's easy to read. I personally really liked the direction it went in, in kind of like the final fifth of the book. I think that really sealed the deal for me. But it's definitely worth your time, definitely worth a read. And I really enjoyed this conversation that I had with uh, with Adam. So without further ado, please do enjoy this 115th episode of the JDO Show featuring Adam Caton Holland. It's kind of a, of a boring first question, but I was wondering if you could just kind of, uh, for the listeners, explain... Uh, kind of who you are, what you do, and then uh, after that, we sure. can talk a little bit about uh, your new book. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I'm Adam Caton Holland, and I'm a comic and a writer and an actor, and I, uh, I live in Denver, Colorado, and this is my first book, and it's, there, it's uh, well, they're selling it as a tragic comic memoir. Um, it's about the loss of my little sister to suicide six years ago. And, um, but it's also about our life growing up together and my family's life and me doing comedy and trying to navigate comedy in the wake of, you know, tragedy. Um, so it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot in a book. Um, but I think it's a pretty nice tribute to Lydia, my sister. And I think it's a pretty honest look at, at mental illness and grief. Right. Right. Well, I wanted to kind of talk about like the process of writing this book. So to start out, how did you, when did you decide to put this into, into book form? Well, let's see, it's kind of, you know, drawn out. So in the wake of all this happening, you know, Lydia's death, I, I just kind of felt the need to write something about it. I wrote a piece about just kind of the hell that I went through and I just put it on my uh, website. Just, I don't know, for me, it was kind of like, I'm a creative type. I do comedy. I talk about myself on stage, you know, it's all the vain artist stuff, but I wasn't talking about Lydia, what I went through and comedy didn't feel like the platform for it for me. So I just wrote this essay and put it up there and it kind of blew up. Um, and you know, on podcasts and stuff, I started talking about what I went through more. And, and then, uh, literally my lit agent found me out of the blue from podcasts and was just like, you need to write a book about this. And I was like, huh, maybe I do. So that was, it was that kind of organic. And did you feel like, did it feel therapeutic doing it? Was there ever a point where you're like, Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, the first thing I wrote was literally me. I needed to write it. It was just like, it sounds cliche, but it was just like, get this out of me. You know, it was my way of like separating myself from it, I guess, or like trying to, to move on a little bit. Um, and I did a ton of therapy in the wake of all of this, but, uh, 
but writing that first piece and then writing the book was more therapeutic than anything. Like I would sit there and write and, uh, and cry and cry and cry and cry and cry. <laughs> so it was definitely working through stuff. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, people who have read it and written, read other things that I've published on the subject have, have been really kind and said it helped them and stuff. And, and that's really nice, but truthfully, that's not at all what I wrote it for. It was, it was very selfish. Just like, I got to get this out of me. You know, I didn't really write it with the goal of helping anyone, but I'm glad that that's sort of a, a side effect. No, that's actually the main thing that I really loved about the book is that it doesn't really ever seem to offer advice. In fact, there's a, there's a kind of chapter towards the end of the book, if I remember correctly, where you're talking about how people kind of hit you up after you wrote this essay and, you know, and they're kind of asking you for advice and your advice is exactly, uh, uh it's contradictory. It's like based on how you feel at that moment. Right. right? Exactly. I thought that, I thought that, yeah, that I mean, was really interesting. Thank you. I, the last thing I wanted, like this book for me was about processing my grief and, and helping my family process the grief, I guess, but also like a tribute to Lydia. And the last thing Lydia was, was cheesy or self-helpy. She was very caustic and cynical and funny. And so I kind of wanted the book to feel like that as well. Cause that's how my whole family is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the last thing I wanted was this to be like some cheesy tied up in a bow, like, and that's how stand-up comedy pulled me back from depression. You know, I just, <laughs> yeah, like, I, yeah. I told my editor and, and my lit agent, I was like, this is not going to feel clean because this experience doesn't feel clean. You know, there's not any resolution really. It's still sad, but, uh, I hopefully just kind of writing honestly about it helps, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And and when you're writing about it, when you're going back and you're, you know, kind of sifting through like all the memories, specifically in childhood, was there a uh-huh. was there a specific process that you went through to like to remember all that? Cuz I I don't know. I don't I don't have a very good memory. So did you like were those just the most prominent memories like in your head or or did you go back through You know, it's memory is a very strange thing and I, and I write about in the book about the process of going through EMDR, which is this like eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's like what you use for often, it's a way of like dealing with PTSD, honestly. Mm -hmm. And it's about processing memories. And like when, I don't know if other people who've had similar trauma feel this way, but it's like, it's very odd how suddenly you have like five or six memories that are like the go-to ones. Mm. And, and they almost often, I think they'll stem from like photographs, you know, like the iconic photograph of your sibling on some vacation or something. And it almost feels like a block, like a mental block. You're just like, and I've talked to my sister about this. My, my, I have an older sister who's, uh, and she was, Lydia was our younger sister, um, about how you just kind of get caught in these memories. It's almost like a politician with his like five or six stories. You know what I mean? Right, it's like right. stump speeches. And so you're like, this is the memory I'm going to share about Lydia. But something about the book helped me get back a lot of memories. So I mean, obviously, because I was trying to write a book and I'm working harder, but going through old photos and old keepsakes and talking to my sister and parents, it really brought back a lot of Lydia. So for me, that was like a joy. Like when you'd remember something new, it was just like, you got to experience it all over again. So I don't know. It was it was a bizarre process, but it helped lock a lot of memories. 
And I've, I've edited a bunch of books. Um, and so I always, I got curious about the editing process of this book because when you're dealing with uh, like sensitive material, uh, and as a stand-up comic, you're, you're probably not precious about most things, but this is particularly kind of sensitive material. Was there like, yeah, how, yeah. how did that editing process work? Like when your editor comes to you and is like, Hey, I think we should cut this for you. Like, but that's, but that's really important. Like how did, how did that back and forth work? Well, my editor is great. So we, we saw eye to eye on a lot of things and, you know, I wrote for a newspaper for five years. I wrote oh, for right, alt weekly yeah. out here in Denver. That gave me a real crash course in not being precious with your words, you know? Sure. Um, so I was I was already used to, I already knew the power of a good editor, um, but they deferred to me on a lot of the stuff and and she asked me my editor Lauren Spiegel she was like how do you want to do this what's what's your process and I was like I just like to turn in the first draft and that's the first time you see it and she's like cool so I just wrote this big old thing and she and then you know there's probably a hundred extra pages that aren't in the book. Um, so she helped me pare it down and was kind of like, hey, how about more of this? How about less of this? And then, you know, that's what a good editor does their magic. And it kind of adhered to a better narrative afterward. Were there any particular scenes that you cut that you kind of wish that had gone in? You know, there's one that I just wrote about, like, waking Lydia up in the morning. Like, I would have, it would be, like, my responsibility to wake her up. And she was, like, such a just monster like the opposite of morning person mm-hmm. so it became this like daily battle and i was the old you know dickhead older brother so i was just like loved it i would just love antagonizing her like first thing in the morning and it was uh-huh. just this funny back and forth and i still have it i think it like book readings i'm going to read that because i'm fond of the piece i see it but it was just this light you know 1200 word like funny exchange that didn't really serve any purpose in the book but i'm i really am fond of it yeah well i think that um in a way it kind of could i suppose in a in a very dark way i mean that could be sort of like foreshadowing right for the what yeah. would eventually happen with the sleeping pills and you know not being able to yeah wake no, up. for sure but uh yeah but, but yeah no so i was wondering also did you did you read uh are you a, are you a kind of an avid reader i know that you said that this uh this worked as as kind of therapy for you but i was wondering if you uh, kind of read for fun or, or what? You mean during the press? Oh, no. Well, I mean, I mean, just like, well, I guess, yeah, both. I mean, I guess in general, but then I am also interested if there were specific books that were, uh, inspirations for you when you were writing this. Um, I read, I'm an avid reader for sure. Yeah. I read everything (laughs) all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, during this, I remember getting, um, David Sedaris, Me Talk Pretty One Day off the shelf, and I remember getting heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius off the shelf, yeah. and sort of just looking at those. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think those are the only two that I, and it was even like, just for guidelines of like, is this, is for, are they doing this first person? Are they doing it past tense? Are they doing it present tense? Just sort of like seeing what they were doing. And I don't even know if I took any cues from them or not, but those were the two books that were on my desk osmosising into my laptop right on right on and as as far as like reading for fun what what kind of books do you like to check out these are very book nerdy questions i apologize I sure man do. no i i'm the i think i'm probably like a lot of your listeners where i'll have like a fun book and then i'll have like a serious book 
uh, I, you know, I, when I was in college, I only read like novels. That was it. And then as I get older and older, a lot of historical nonfiction stuff. Um, like right now I'm reading, um, how I became a famous novelist, which is by like, I think he wrote for Conan or Letterman. It's a really funny book. And then I found a little free library, a book called coyotes about like, you know, Mexican American immigrants trying to cross the border. And I'm like reading both at the same time. Oh, that shit is crazy, dude. I live in El Paso, so I'm I'm pretty close to Uh-oh. the to the border. So, yeah, that shit is wild, dude. But uh, yeah, and then I'm reading the birth partner because having a baby in November. So oh, congratulations, congratulations, man. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I said, do you know the uh, boy girl? You know what it is? Now we're just gonna be surprised. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> I've just been saying all I want. I don't want a boy or a girl. I just want. A lefty, preferably Puerto Rican or Dominican. That's all I want. <laughs> right on. There's a there's a bit in the book uh, that I really I really resonated with, and it's not a huge part of the book, but you talk about your uh, your OCD, um, mm. and that sure. that was something that really really resonated with me because I've had that pretty much my whole life, and it's not really okay. it's not really like what people think. It's not like you know that show Monk. Like I don't, I don't wash my hands yeah, a whole yeah. bunch or anything like that. It's more like, um, yeah, if I don't like repeat a certain sequence of numbers before I turn the bathroom light off, like a meteor is going to strike my house and my mother is <laughs> right. going to die. So I thought that that was a, that that was a really interesting thing to include. And you mentioned towards the end that it gets, it's gotten a little bit better. Like, is there any like what did you do to get it better? Because I need I need help. <laughs> for me it was just age like i the the laundry list of shit i had to do was just getting longer and longer to the point that it was untenable yeah and i think i also like going off to college i couldn't it was almost like I, people were now seeing me go to sleep you know what i mean so i kind of was like embarrassed ashamed out of like doing half of the things i needed to do previous to go to sleep but i don't know i mean I still have a lot. Like, I think the one I use a lot in the book is like, if you drop one thing, you have to drop another thing. So that thing's not lonely. That's just like, I can't, I can't shake that one. So if I litter, I litter twice. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. For me, if I throw away a a plastic bottle, I have to unscrew the cap uh, because I have this feeling that there, if there was like some kind of entity or ghost that was trapped in the bottle i wouldn't want it to be trapped there forever it's ridiculous shit man but it's just like (laughs) i love that but i love that like yeah it isn't like these monk like i don't know like clinical cleanliness thing it's more these just bizarre personal obsessions that are just weird and nonsensical i wish i had better advice for how to get rid of it for me it was just age and like I don't know if you have a lady that you live with or a boyfriend that you live with or whatever it is, but partner. Um, I feel like for me, it was like being ashamed of like them seeing the true neuroses. But I mean, you talk to my wife and she'll be like, oh yeah, he's so neurotic. He does this, 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 and this. Right, so, right. Like, it, yeah, no, no. My, so, my, uh, my, yeah. my wife is 100% the same way. She'll like see me kicking rocks like in a parking lot. And she'll say like, "All right, that's that's enough." And it freaked me out too, dude, because I used to go pick her up from her job at Wells Fargo, and there would be this woman uh-huh. who was, uh, you know, maybe in her late seventies, early eighties, and she would always go into the bank and deposit whatever change she had. 
But when I would go to pick her up, I'd watch her walk through the parking lot and she had to walk in like a specific pattern and she would just be there for like 15 minutes. And I was like, if I don't, if I don't do something soon, this is going to get out of control. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be the old lady depositing change. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. That's I used to kick rocks too. Like if I was walking from one destination to another, I'd find one rock and kick that same rock the entire way. And like, if it got off course, I'd have to like go into somebody's lawn and like retrieve it and kick it back onto the sidewalk. And like, so a, a five minute walk would be 20 minutes. Cause I had to have get this rock from point A to point B. Totally too. Yeah. And it's, did you have any particular ritual? Sorry, this is turning into the OCD therapy podcast. <laughs> but like, did you have any particular rituals hey. before you went on stage or? Uh, boy, that's a good question. I mean, that, that one, uh, it was just walking around the block. I would walk around the block of the venue and like think of the jokes in my head, like recite them. But even that vanished. And I think it's because probably if I, if I had to, to analyze it, like OCD is about trying to maintain control. And I quickly learned, you know, there's no control on comedy. <laughs> so right. it's like, especially when you first start out, you're not good. So you go on stage hoping it goes one way and it goes 15 different other ways. You're quickly like, okay, OCD is not helping here. I have zero control. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you have, now when you said when you're starting out, you mentioned in the book that a lot of people eat shit. Do you have a particular like memory of, of some tough sets? Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I admire comedians so much, dude, because like i I'm terrified to even like be doing this interview. Like this is social to me, you know? So I have a lot of respect <laughs> for what you guys do, but I'm sorry to interrupt, but please continue. No, I, I mean, I, that's cool of you to say. It's weird because, you know, I just think of comics as the biggest collection of assholes I've ever met, but <laughs> I, we're all just kind of broken in the same way, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I was doing this one show and I was headlining at the comedy club and like, there's a bachelorette party, which is the the stereotypical just poison of a comedy show. And they were just these drunk women with, you know, penis necklaces and crap right. and just being so loud. And I'm constantly shutting them down and like doing it well, being funny, not trying to be too mean, but trying to be like, hey, shut up. I'm, I'm performing here. And I mean, I shut them down like 15 times. The club didn't kick them out because they were just lax. I don't know what was going on. But finally, I was like, close to closing the set, like being done with the performance. And I'm launching into this bit that's like six minutes long, ha- very precise, has like a punchline that lands the entire plane. You know, you got to like really be on board for it. Mm-hmm. And so I'm doing the joke and I've got about I don't know, 50 seconds left. And I see one of the members of the bachelorette party stand up and she starts like walking towards stage, walking towards stage. And now I'm like racing her, trying to finish the bit before <laughs> she gets here to do whatever it is she's going to do. And I like, don't do it. She gets right up to the front of the stage and hands me a note. And I was like, God, like, you know, messing with my timing. I grabbed the note and the note just said, fuck you. <laughs> and I was like, all right, all right, all of you out. You're kicked out. Get out of the club. And I just like threw them all out. But it was just so funny that this woman felt compelled to write "fuck you" yeah. on a note and, and hand deliver it to me. It's so, amazing. Yeah, that was a fun one. It's amazing that like the the kind of how hecklers seem to get really really offended when they're the ones doing the heckling. I, I went to go see uh, Tom Green do stand up, which is actually pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I've I've performed with him. He's he's funny. 
Yeah, and so he goes out there, and of course it was the it wasn't a bachelor party, but it was just you know your pretty typical drunk person, and uh, yeah, and he start he took he told like three or four jokes, and then he was like uh, he was just like he would stop his joke when she would talk and just be like, shut the fuck up, you know, and just like really <laughs> yeah. single her out. And it got like a little nasty, like a little mean, but I mean, in my opinion, she deserved it. But anyway, but she gets, she gets mad and like, she wants to fight. And it's like, what are you doing? Like you're, you're fucking it up for everybody. It's weird. You know, I have a theory on it, which is, you know, if you're, if you're a heckler, if you're heckling, you're an idiot. Cause like who goes to performances and to like to disrupt them. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, and this is my, the kindest way I can put it for a lot of people at comedy clubs, they've never been to comedy in their life. The club called them and was like, Hey, we got free tickets. They're like, okay. And they, they go, they get drunk. And some comedian is like telling these provocative ideas, like the things that you've thought, but not said, and they just get loose and they're like, oh, this is like a place where anything goes. And, you know, if you're this buttoned up accountant wasted on the weekend, having never like thought this way, all of a sudden you start yelling shit out in a way you wouldn't before. You know, yeah. it's almost like a, I don't know, Woodstock for these people or something. <laughs> they're just like, it's like just, all right, dude, I get it. You're, you're feeling free to just yell shit, but uh, that's not what we're trying to do here. Right, right, exactly. And I think a big, another big problem too. This is mo- something that I've noticed more with uh, with dudes is that I think every guy deep down thinks that he's hilarious, and it's big just like, dude, exactly. And it's just a matter of time before. And I'm totally guilty of this. I'm actually, I always, you know, I come from a long line of incredibly unfunny people. Right, my my grandfather <laughs> was an unfunny man. My father was too. But I like, I thought I was going to be the one that was going to break the mold. You know. And I'm 31 now, and I'm finally suddenly like realizing like I have like I've never been funny. But, but a lot of people just don't get that, dude. They think everybody thinks they could be a comedian. Well, that self awareness right there puts you ahead of many comedians. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> like I feel like I, I recognize when things are funny. I just I was hanging out with uh, comedians once, and it was like it was so embarrassing, you know, because. I'd had a few like drinks. I was hanging out with uh, Duncan Trussell and uh, this guy, oh, Ian, yeah. Ian Fidance, and I was just sitting there. And as I got drunker, I was like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang with these guys," you know. And I, yeah, right. It's it's my eternal shame, like to this day, that I, I just I, <laughs> it probably was they don't they probably don't even remember like me at all. But like, I'll sometimes be in the shower and I'll think about it. Like, God damn it. <laughs> uh washing the shame away yeah but so when you're actually when you decide to become a professional comedian right like so there's there's a there's a structure to to kind of writing jokes and i wonder if uh if there's anything this is kind of a weird question but hey i'll sure. go for it is there is there something that like do you think that learning how to write jokes and and also i mean obviously you know your your career as a as a journalist before that but jokes specifically did those help you to write this book like the setup punchline kind of thing you know i don't think so i think there's certainly one hand washes the other if anything i think in like if you're at a funny moment in a paragraph and you want to land the punchline i think maybe a comic understands economy of words a little bit quicker mm-hmm. and it's like let's get to this quick um but 
I think that for me, they're different beasts. I think one, one informs the other one helps, but I don't think that it's like, Oh man, I can, this book's way funnier. Cause I'm a comic. I think it's just like, there's lots of funny writers who mm-hmm. get to the same point through writing. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'll leave that to somebody else to decide. I don't think it hurt by any means, but I don't think that like it, it's like some superpower in literally like typing writing that you're a comic because I think the voice is a, slightly different. Now, do you think that now that you've kind of uh, that this book is coming out and you know you've you've maybe not exercised all the the bad stuff, right? Do you see yourself continuing to write, or do you think this is more of just a a thing that kind of needed to be done and now you're kind of going to focus more on comedy or? Well, I, no, I would love to continue to write. I mean, growing up, I always wanted to be a writer, not a comic. Hmm. Um, and you know, I, I have a TV show and written a lot of scripts for that. And like, so I enjoy, I'm working on a script for a movie. I, I I'm never content in one genre. I like them all. So I would love to keep writing books. I just don't really have the idea yet for the next one. I have a few things I'm kicking around, but, yeah, I hope that this book sort of um, opens more doors for that, like, you know, writing short pieces and publishing them in magazines and types of things. But we'll just kind of see. I'm not trying. I'm just kind of going with the next project and then on to the next one and then on to the next one, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I have my last question. I'm saving it for last just in case. It's a little bit of a spoiler because it's about something that happens towards the end of the book. So if you want me to cut it, that's sure. cool. But I was really, really interested, uh, particularly uh, in the Red Hawk section of the book yeah. so i was wondering yeah, yeah. if you could talk about that a little bit and then i have some follow-ups sure i mean um long story short you know that chapter is a little bit spiritual and surreal and it's about sort of uh, um how my mom started having these strange interaction with red tail hawks in the wake of lydia's death like i wrote about several that were just uncanny it wasn't just like i saw a red-tailed hawk it was like i saw a red-tailed hawk and it behaved very strange and it was prolonged and i was right near it and and i i did as well um and so my mom and i kind of like we we just sort of hit upon that organically it's like why well, had this story with a hawk and she's like i had this story with a hawk and they kept happening to the point where we started thinking like that's lydia trying to communicate with us and i don't know if it was like this literal like you know, reincarnation or just sort of spiritually, this was her way of trying to get at us. And then there was a, it kind of dovetails in that chapter with a friend of mine who uh, is sort of more in tune that way. And, and, you know, I think that the term would be, you know, a medium or, but even though she's not practicing or anything, she's just sort of always been wired that way to, and how she was getting these strange signals from Lydia about trying to get to me and, you know, for your listeners, I think they'll find I'm this, in the course of the book, this sort of cynical, a religious type of guy. And then all this stuff starts happening. So it's sort of this bizarre twist that I think is hopeful and spiritual. And it's just kind of where I found myself. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the way I can describe it. It's just these very strange circumstances that kept happening after one after another that were too powerful to ignore, I guess. Yeah, and I, I love 100% that you put it in because, you know, you're reading the book and it's it's very well written, it's funny, and at times, you know, for the most part, it's just like, it's massively sad, of course, right? Because that's mm-hmm. just, that's what mm-hmm. the subject matter is. 
And I was wondering, you know, how you were going to kind of tie it all up. And I really do think that it was, especially in this kind of age of uh, like pretty hardcore online, at least atheists who yeah, yeah. sort of, you know, uh, scoff at anything like that. Uh, I thought it was just right. a really, really cool move to, and bold in a way, right? Like you're kind of saying like, hey, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is part of the grief process, right? Like we're sort of yeah. recognizing her in, in signs and, and symbols, right? Right. And uh, so I was... Yeah, kind of, and I... I oh, go ahead, I, sorry. Well, I just don't know. I mean, exactly. I don't know in that type of total trauma and grief if you're... And, and again, any, as a reader will see, it's like eerie, the stuff that's happening to my mom and I. And, and we weren't like sharing it until we finally both were like, hey, this happened. And then it like the floodgates opened. So it wasn't like we were egging one another on to be looking for this stuff. It was mm -hmm. happening independently. Um, but I think, you know, there is sort of when you're that close to death and it's just washed over you, I do believe you're a little more in tune with the universe you know it's just like it's maybe it happens with the birth i'll see but it's like these powerful forces of life are just right there yeah and i think it kind of like opens you up spiritually and i'm not saying i'm some bible beater now I, you know as i say in the book i'm like agnostic not an atheist but i always am careful to point that out because it's like I, I i don't know i don't know the answers atheists are so uh certain and i'm not certain of anything yeah. So I, I, uh, yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It was, and it's just how it happened for me. So I, you know, this book is, on, is very honest. So I didn't really have any agenda or was trying to like do a cool twist. It's just how it went down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that basically the, one of the other reasons why I liked it so much is because it just felt true. You know, like when folks have died in my periphery, there always does seem to be those weird sort of synchronicities that begin to peak up and like who knows what they are but um yeah but uh yeah no i mean uh just just between you i mean actually this can just be in the podcast whatever but i really did enjoy it man it's a it's a great book so um thank you i, I appreciate that and it's not a it's not an easy thing to do so um but it was it was great talking to you i really appreciate uh, your time thank you for coming on the show and uh all the best success to you in this book Thank you. And thanks for your interest in it and for like sharing it with your listeners. I, I appreciate that. Very cool. Absolutely.